Thank you, Glenn. Please take your Bibles and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11. We uh, this morning reached the, the halfway point of our study of this book. Revelation chapter 11, we will be reading the entire chapter. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. One of you uh, recently gave to me a book that is entitled Letter to the American Church by a man by the name of Eric Metaxas. It's a very... Um, thought-provoking book, and the book talks about the fact that for um, 
Too long, the American church has been silent when it comes to many of the moral issues of our day. In fact, one of the chapters is titled, The Church Paralyzed. Why is the church in in many respects so paralyzed? Why is the church so often silent? And how might the Bible encourage us as Christians to, in a sense, wake up and, and speak directly to some of the major moral issues of our day? Revelation 11 is another one of those what on earth is this chapter about passages that Revelation seems to be filled with. But but I would submit to you this morning that if we understand this chapter correctly, there's no reason for us to be silent. There's no reason for us to be paralyzed. In fact, it's just the opposite. Revelation 11 gives us every reason to speak without fear and with boldness, knowing that we are the people of God. This is a passage that should fill all of us with courage. It it should motivate us as we seek to, to live out our Christian lives in our communities and in our callings, However old or however young you are, Revelation 11, if we understand this passage correctly, should really motivate us to live boldly as God's people in this world. Now, we're going to look at this passage this morning in three parts. First of all, God measures his people. Secondly, God uses his people. And third, God rewards his people. He measures us. He uses us, and he rewards us. Chapter begins, and and John is given this uh, measuring stick. And and he's told to to take the measuring stick and measure the temple and count how many worshipers there are. Now, our our dispensational friends take this literally. They they take this to mean that, that someday in the future, there's going to be a literal temple that you can measure and literal worshipers in that temple that you can count. There are, however, a couple of problems with that view. First of all, nowhere does the New Testament give any indication that the temple in Jerusalem, which was destroyed in 70 A.D., will one day be rebuilt. Children, what was the purpose of the temple in the Old Testament? What did they they do in the temple? That's where sacrifices were made. That's where animals were killed. That's where blood was shed. And the blood of those animals was pointing ahead to the fact that one day Jesus would come and he would shed his blood for the forgiveness of all of our sins. And in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, we're told that when Jesus came to earth, he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And so the, the, the blood of bulls and goats is no longer needed. Children, maybe you, you read your Bible at some point and you read about a, a lamb being killed or a bull being killed or a goat being killed and, and blood is put all over the tabernacle or the temple. And maybe you wonder to yourself at some point, why don't we do that? 
Why don't the elders come up and sacrifice bulls up here and we, we splatter blood all over the place? Well, the reason we don't do that is because Jesus came and he offered himself as a single sacrifice for sin for all time. We don't, we don't need animal blood anymore because what that animal blood pointed to, the blood of Jesus, has already come. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18 says, Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so it would make no sense for there to be a rebuilt, literal temple one day because that temple would serve no purpose. There'd be no meaning to that. The second reason why we should not take this as a literal temple here in Revelation 11 is because of the kind of literature the book of Revelation is. We've, we've talked about this before in the previous chapters. Revelation is what is known as apocalyptic literature. And as apocalyptic literature, it is filled with symbols. We, we've seen that already in Revelation. And, and these symbols are not to be interpreted literally, but they are to be interpreted symbolically. And so the question becomes, what then is this temple teaching us? How should we interpret this temple? Well, you've heard me say this through Revelation, but but when we get to the very difficult passages, we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We have to go to other places in the Bible to see what Revelation is saying. And there there are two specific New Testament passages that help us to understand what this temple is. The first one is in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, which says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The second one is 2 Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, where Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house or a spiritual temple. And so in the New Testament... The temple is not a building. The temple is the people of God. Now, now why would John be given a measuring stick and told to to go measure God's people? Well, why do we measure things? We measure things for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons we measure things is to know what belongs to us. For example, if if you have a piece of land, it's important to know where the where the boundaries of your land are so that you know what belongs to you and what doesn't belong to you. That's kind of what um, surveyors do. Surveyors figure out boundary lines. John's measuring of the temple here is a symbolic way of, of telling us that God knows who belongs to him. That's the point John tells, or God tells John, go measure my people so that in a sense God knows who belongs to him. It's very similar to what Paul says in in 2 Timothy 2. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And so in a very symbolic way, God is, is telling us this morning that he knows us. He knows who we are, and he knows that we belong to him. Now, in addition to this, John is also told, don't measure the outer courtyard. It's been turned over to the nations, and and they're going to trample 
the holy city, for 42 months. Once again, this is symbolic. It's symbolic of the persecution that the church has faced and will continue to face all throughout history. A book that I've mentioned to you before is a a book entitled Trial and Triumph. It's a a book about the history of the church between the first and the 20th centuries. I I think we might even have the book in our church library. And it's... um, It's a book about all these people in church history between the first century and the 20th century. And each chapter is pretty short. It's about five or six pages to give you a little uh, biographical sketch of all these people in church history. And if you've ever read that book before or if you read it one day, one of the things that will stand out to you is that most of the people in that book suffered hardship and persecution on account of their faith. There's no one in the book who says, you know, my Christian life was always so wonderful. I never had any problems. I had everything I ever wanted. No one hated me. It was just wonderful being a Christian. The the book starts with Polycarp. Polycarp was a, a first century church leader, and he was burned at the stake. The second person in the book is a woman named Blandina. Blandina was a a second century Christian who was thrown to bulls. And they let the bulls just trample her, and then they killed her with a sword. The very last person in the book is a man named Richard Wormbrand, who was a, a 20th century Lutheran pastor in Romania, who was imprisoned for years and tortured by the communist regime in Romania. And all in between, all of those stories, all of those accounts, for 20 centuries, you have stories of men and women who suffered greatly on account of their faith in Christ. Now, we are very blessed. We, we have issues in our nation, of course, but we have a lot of freedoms, and we are very blessed. But that is not true with all Christians throughout history. And that's what's being pictured here in Revelation 11. God's people will face opposition. God's people will suffer. You can count on it. The world hated Jesus. The world will hate you. But even as we're opposed, even as we're persecuted, even as we suffer on account of our faith, John measures us in a sense to remind us that God knows who we are. And he knows that we belong to him. One commentator says this. He says, this measuring may be taken to mean that God is in control of all that happens to his servants and that they are well known in number and in name to God. You, you, may, you may think of yourself as insignificant, but God knows you by name. He knows everything about you. He knows that you are his And as we heard earlier from from Romans chapter 8, there's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from his love. Now what about the 42 months part? Well, let me give you three brief things about that. First of all, in the Old Testament, 42 months, which is also 1,260 days, is symbolic of a period of testing and trial. Secondly, based on what we find in the book of Daniel and also here in Revelation, 42 months is also symbolic of the entire period between the ascension of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. 
And then third, 42 months equals three and a half years. Three and a half is half of seven. And in the Bible, seven is the number of fullness or completeness. You put this all together, and and what you have here is this. It's a reminder that the entire time between the ascension of Christ and his second coming is marked by suffering and trial and persecution and tribulation, but that persecution won't last forever. Three and a half, not seven. It will one day come to an end. The point is this. If, If you are a Christian, you don't need to live in fear. You you don't need to be paralyzed. You don't need to remain silent. God has stretched his measuring stick over each one of us, and we belong to him. I think of Alana and Kaylin this morning. Both of these young ladies stood up here, and they said, Jesus is my Savior. He's not just the Savior. He's my Savior. And I want to live my life for him. And this isn't the finish line for them. In a sense, this is only the beginning for these young ladies. But even though they can expect opposition in this world, they and and all of us can live boldly for Christ because he knows each one of us personally. We would do well to remember the words of the hymn, The Church is One Foundation. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and strive to see her fail, against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. Since that is true, why would we be silent? Why would we live in fear? We belong to God. He knows us. He knows we are his. And we will never fall from him. Second thing in this passage is that God uses his people. Notice verse 3. It says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, who are these two witnesses? Well, verse 4 tells us. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now you say, that didn't really help me. That doesn't help at all. Who are the two witnesses? Well, this is why we need to know the Old Testament. In the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4, there's a vision of a candlestick with seven lamps. And and those seven lamps are supplied with oil by two olive trees, very similar to what we see here in Revelation 11. And in Zechariah 4, Zechariah is told that the the olive trees and the lampstand represent Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor. These are two men the Lord had called to complete the temple project. These are the two men the Lord had called to carry out his purposes in the world. And so based on that, I think the two witnesses of Revelation 11 are this. This is the church in its gospel proclamation. This is the church in its gospel proclamation. The the number two also is a reminder to us of how Jesus sent out his disciples two by two in Luke chapter 10. 
And so for 1,260 days, in other words, for the entire time between the ascension and the return of Jesus, the church is to be diligent to carry out its task to bring the gospel to the nations. This isn't only the job of pastors. This isn't only the job of missionaries. Remember, all of us have been called to a threefold office. All of us, if we are Christians, have been called to be prophets, priests, and kings. And as prophets, it's, it's our calling, regardless of our age, it's our calling to speak the word of God to others. And so Revelation 11 is a reminder to us of the church in its missionary calling, the church in its calling to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the word of God. This is why the church must not remain silent. This is why we don't start a Christian commune where we can get away from unbelievers, where we get away from the world. We have a calling We have a calling to speak God's word into our society today. This is the commission that Jesus gave his disciples in the book of Acts. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Empowered by the Spirit of God, we are called to be Christ's witnesses wherever we are, school, Our neighborhoods, our work, we are called to be the witnesses of Christ. Now you wonder why are these two witnesses clothed in sackcloth? Well, in the in the Bible, sackcloth is a picture of sorrow for sin. It's a it's a picture of repentance. This is a reminder that the 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 message the message that we proclaim is not just God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. The message that we proclaim is a call to repentance. It's a call for people to to turn from their sin, to turn from their vain attempts at at self-justifying themselves, at earning their way to heaven, to, to turn to Jesus alone for salvation. Our message message is repent and believe or you are on your way to eternal destruction. Now there are many people who don't want to hear this message. If you look at verse 5, it it talks about those who would seek to harm the witnesses. In other words, there there will be hostility toward us. There will be hostility toward our message. There are those who don't want to hear that they are guilty sinners who deserve judgment. They they don't want to hear that they are helpless and can do nothing to save themselves. There are those who don't want to hear that there's only one way to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet notice what verse 5 says. It says, if anyone would harm them, if anyone would harm the witnesses, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And you say, well, that's the part I like where I can breathe fire on people. That's not talking about literal fire. It's not saying that you can, you can kill your opponents with fire that comes out of your mouth. But, but this is speaking of the word of condemnation that, that we proclaim for those who refuse to repent. We, we don't say, well, if you don't believe in Jesus, that's okay. As long as you're sincere, you have your way, I have my way, let's just all coexist. That's not what we preach. 
We, we also proclaim for those who do not believe, who those, those who do not repent, we proclaim a word of condemnation. Now this word of condemnation is not our own word. This is God's word. For example, John 3.18 says, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I ask you this morning, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? If, if you do, you are not condemned. But if you do not, you are presently under the condemnation of God. That's our message. And, and we should proclaim this message with confidence, not, not because of who we are, but because the Word of God is powerful. That's why, that's why Moses and Elijah are alluded to here in verse 6. Did you notice that? talks about the power to, to shut the sky so that it doesn't rain. That's Elijah. It talks about the power to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with plagues. That's Moses. This is the power of God's word. This is why we should proclaim this word with boldness. Because we, we know that God will work through his word. It's like Charles Spurgeon once said that the, the word of God is like a lion. Children, if you want a, a lion to go out in all of its power, you don't leave that lion in the cage. You unleash the lion. You let that lion loose. And Spurgeon said that's how it is with the word of God. We don't have to make it powerful. We don't have to make the lion any stronger than he already is. We simply let the lion out of the cage. And in the same way, we are called to speak the word of God trusting that it is powerful. Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why would we be silent? Why would we be paralyzed? Why would we not speak when we know that the word of God is living and active and powerful? And as Isaiah 55 says, it will accomplish his exact purpose in this world. But again, don't expect this to be smooth sailing all the time. That's pictured for us here when we're told that the beast will rise up from the bottomless pit and will make war on God's witnesses and will kill them. Many scholars believe that this is referring to times in history where it has appeared as if the church was going to be snuffed out in certain places, that the church would be eliminated, that the church would be silenced, China, Soviet Union, North Korea, there have been moments in history where it looked like the witness of the church had been silenced. And so the world celebrates. Verse 10 says, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. It's like a party. We've silenced the church. We've silenced the gospel. We've snuffed out Christianity. We've done it. But the world can never defeat God's kingdom. The world can never destroy the church. God will always have a people for himself. Notice verse 11, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Even when the world thinks we've won, even when the world thinks we've done it, We've silenced those Christians. 
We've done away with the church. God will continue to bring dead sinners to life. And his church will march on. God uses his people. And so God measures his people. He knows that you belong to him. He uses his people. He uses us in our gospel proclamation, our witness of his word. And number three, he rewards his people. One of the great things about being a Christian is that we have a a wonderful hope in the midst of a world that seems so often so hopeless. We're, We're not just living for this life. Look at verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. This is an echo of what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to take his people to their final inheritance and to judge this unbelieving world. It's not a secret rapture. It's not a secret where God, you know, catches his people up and and the unbelievers are going, what happened to those people? They were just here and now they're gone. This This is a loud moment. This is a moment that everyone will know what's happening. The same moment is described in verse 15 and following the seventh trumpet The final trumpet is blown and a voice cries out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. I can't wait to hear that voice. I can't wait to hear that voice say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Is that how you see the seventh trumpet? One day that seventh trumpet will be blown. And on that day, the Lord Jesus will come. And he will judge this unbelieving world. And he will take all of his people to their eternal home. As you sit in the pew this morning, does the thought that that trumpet will one day blow, does that excite you? Does that make you glad? Or does it cause you fear and and anxiety? Do Do you say to yourself, I don't know what will happen to me on that day? If that is you, I urge you this morning to run to the Lord Jesus Christ to confess him as your Lord and your Savior, and then you will know that you do not need to fear that judgment because Jesus has taken the judgment for you. This is a wonderful chapter. It's a a confusing chapter. It's a weird chapter, but it's a wonderful chapter because it, it speaks to us of who we are as God's people. We belong to him. He 
is ours and we are his. He knows us and he calls us to go out into this world and and to live, whether we are young or old, to live boldly for him. You know, one thing you can say about the unbelieving world is that they fight for what they believe in. Now, they may be dead wrong, and, and if they continue on, they will find out that they are on the wrong side of history. But they don't give up. They don't change their message. They don't back down. They continue, continue, continue to push their godless agenda, and they don't give up. In many respects, I think that Eric Metaxas is right, that the church is paralyzed, that the church has backed down, that the church has shut its mouth. But when we understand this chapter, why would we be silent? Why would we sit by idly and and do nothing while the unbelieving world continues to ram its godless agenda down our throats? Why would we not speak? We belong to the God of the universe. There's nothing anyone can do to change that. We are his witnesses in this world. He's promised to always be with us. He's promised to to never leave us or forsake us. He's given us the Holy Spirit who will give us the words to speak. And he's promised that his kingdom will never be defeated. Why, oh why, would we be silent when we understand what God is saying to us in his word? May the Lord give us boldness to live for him. And may we take his word out into our world and unleash it and see God work through that word. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we confess that we are often timid. We are often afraid to speak. We don't know how people will respond. We maybe don't know what to say. But Lord, you have given to us your spirit. Your spirit is always with us. Your spirit will lead and guide us. And Lord, as we have looked at this chapter this morning, we pray now that you would give us the courage to be faithful witnesses of yours in this world. As we have witnessed professions of faith this morning and and we'll witness more next week, Lord, we not only pray for these young people, but we pray for all of us that we would be your witnesses wherever we are. Give us the grace and the strength to do that for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.